Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Tecumseh, the outdoor drama in Chillicothe, starts its season on Thursday. In a moment, I'll talk with the show's producer. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Brittany Bailey covers topics that include gun legislation and a bill to restrict discussion of gender identification and sexual orientation. In about 40 minutes, I'll talk with someone from the Trust for America's Health about an annual report looking at public health preparedness and how Ohio stacks up. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with someone from AARP about the high costs of specialty drugs. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Brandon Smith, who is the producer of the Tecumseh Outdoor Drama in Chillicothe. How are you? I'm good, Dave. It's good to be with you. Thanks. Thanks for talking to us. This is a huge year for these performances. It's a big year, uh, 50 years this year. Um, You know, it's not 50 consecutive years because we had to close for COVID a couple of years ago, but uh, 50 years it is. And uh, uh, who'd ever thought that, that... that, that a play could last that long. It's pretty amazing. And it's neat to, to look at your story because you actually go back to the very beginning with this. I go back a long ways. Not not to the very beginning, but, <laughs> but a long way. Um, I started here, I think, in 1993, uh, which would have been about the 23rd season, I think. Uh, so I was here for the 25th uh, and uh, spent, about, spent about eight years here. Uh, working the summers while I was in college and high school, uh, came back one random summer uh, to run the gift shop, and then uh, uh, have been back for eight years. This will be my eighth year uh, back as producer. I got my wording mixed up. I didn't mean to imply you were in your seventies or something. <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> I meant I meant that you actually started in almost like a beginning position with the place, right? Sure did. Yeah, I actually uh, started as a ticket taker, yeah. um, uh, filling in for someone who had to leave midsummer. So that first year was just uh, kind of a half a year, uh, and it was really a fluke. My brother was uh, working in the box office and uh, uh, came home one night and said, hey, do you want a, a job for the rest of the year? And I said, sure, why not? And um, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I haven't been able to get away since. <laughs> that's, that's an amazing, that's a great American story to go from ticket taker to the producer of the show. Um, yeah, it is. You know, to, uh, my experience here at Tecumseh um, kind of uh, uh, kick-started my interest uh, in working in the theater. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was a, I was a music kid, uh, all through high school. And that was my plan was, uh, uh to go get a, a music degree. I played cello and, uh, and did quite a bit of, uh, auditioning and, uh, for college for that. And I remember my senior year, you know, during that time, at least you got a few days off of school where you could go do college visitations. And, uh, I always wanted to go to New York city. So I thought, well, if I go audition in New York city, I can get days off of school and kind of get a, a free trip to New York. And uh, I had a teacher who uh, I had played uh, bass in, in the pit for a musical for her. And she said, uh, well, I know some people uh, at uh, the Stella Adler uh, uh, Academy uh, that you could go audition for. And they're great people, and I think you'll enjoy it. And, and so go do that. I had no expectation of getting in at all. Uh, and much to my surprise, I did. Um, so that kind of changed the, the whole course of my life. And I moved to New York and went to acting school and uh, stayed there for about 10 years and then bounced around uh, in Vermont, New Hampshire, North Carolina, northern Ohio, <clears throat> before uh, 
before this job came open and, and allowed me to come back home, which, which is great because my family is still here and uh, this is home and I've always loved Chillicothe. You're a real Ohioan. You, some of your uh, past experiences have dealt with the symphony in Mansfield. I mean, you've been, you've been around yeah. the state and done a lot of, a lot of big stuff. Yeah, and, and it's been great. You know, the arts uh, community in Ohio is, is really a very robust one, uh, a small knit community. You know, we kind of all know each other um, and uh, just really great people doing great work all over the state. And I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of it. So Tecumseh, in a nutshell, what is it? So we're an outdoor drama. Uh, Again, we've been here since 1973, and we tell the story of Tecumseh, uh, who was, you know, a great uh, Ohioan that uh, that we celebrate. He was uh, born near Yellow Springs and grew up here uh, near Chillicothe, not just a couple miles from where the theater is. And uh, he became world famous for his attempt to build a Pan-American Confederation of Indian tribes with which to stop the further westward expansion of the United States. And he nearly pulled it off. Uh, he uh, ultimately was defeated uh, in Indiana at a village that he'd established over there on the Tippecanoe River. Um, and after that, he joined the British Army in the War of 1812, became a general in the British Army, uh, and was killed in that war in 1813 up in Canada. So it's, it's kind of an amazing story. Um, and in 1973, when they first produced this show, it was one that was not well known, uh, you know, it, in the further, you know, bigger reaches of the United States, but, but also just here locally. I think people knew the name, but weren't really sure why they knew it. And so this play has done a number of things uh, for the community as far as creating tourism dollars and, and all of that. But it also, I think, has really opened up a celebration uh, and acknowledgement of the history that we have here. So during a, I understand that, that the seating capacity is near 2,000 for a show. Is that right? Yeah, there's about 1,800 seats uh, in the theater. Last year, because we were under COVID restrictions, we weren't able to sell all 1,800 seats. We kind of kept it at about 1,300. Mm -hmm. And we learned a lot, you know, under those uh, guidelines. And one of the things that we learned was that having 1,300 people here instead of 1,800 people here was a a good thing. Um, It was easier to park. It's easier to get through the restroom lines and all of that stuff. So we're going to leave that cap uh, at 1,300 and... Mm -hmm. Uh, further plans are to uh, replace all the seats in the theater probably next year. And so by doing that, by nature, you know, the seats are going to be a little bigger. And uh, so we're going to lose seating by that. And, and thirteen to 1,400 people is, uh, is a comfortable and good place to be. Does that do anything to the acoustics when you've got fewer people there? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, the acoustics in the theater are, are really kind of amazing. Um, you know, for 49 years, we, we haven't used a microphone on that stage. That's changing this year. Uh, we were uh, just about finished installing uh, a massive new sound system, which will do a lot of things, uh, but it will also give just a little bit of amplification to the voices, uh, which will help on those nights when it's really crowded or uh, when the insects are particularly loud in the trees <laughs> or the wind is blowing, uh, and it makes it a little harder to hear on those nights. So uh, we're, we're pretty excited about getting some microphones on the stage. Talking with Brandon Smith, producer of the Tecumseh Outdoor Drama in Chillicothe. How many performers do you have and where do you find them? Uh, there's about 60 people in the company, uh, all told. So that's technicians, actors, stage managers, etc., uh, and we find them all over the world. Um, we go to four to five 
what we call cattle call auditions uh, every year. Um, and so that's an audition where there'll be a hundred different theater companies sitting in the audience and you'll just see audition after audition. There's a couple of them where we'll see two to 3,000 auditions in just a few days. Um, and so all told, I think this year I looked at about somewhere between eight and 10,000 headshots, uh, watched five to 6,000 auditions. And from that, we whittle it down to about 60 people. Wow. Is there a lot of local input at all? Yeah, there is. Uh, so we have a lot of locals involved in a lot of different places. So obviously the house staff, the box office crew, parking, maintenance, uh, all of those people are local. Our head pyrotechnician uh, lives here in Chillicothe. He's been with the company for 40 plus years. Uh, our uh, horse trainer, uh, Tim Klein, uh, grew up in the show. He was a little kid on the stage uh, and uh, grew up to be one of the most respected horse trainers in the world. And he lives five miles down the road. So uh, he takes care of all of our horses. Uh, and then uh, we have a few actors who are local in the play. Uh, I think more this year than normal. I think we have four this year, uh, which is more than we normally have. Uh, and then uh, – uh, the board uh, is uh, comprised of people from Ross, Pickaway, and Pike counties. Uh, so there's a lot of local input. And then, of course, you know, just the businesses uh, in the area that support the show. Uh, it really, it, it could not happen year after year without that kind of local support. So are some of the main stars of these from year to year, are they uh, aspiring actors who want to make it to the movies or in TV or to Broadway? W what is their story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think a lot of uh, a lot of people who come through here are either interested in, in uh, making theater uh, a profession for themselves, uh, or are just trying it out to see if maybe they're interested in that. And uh, you know, I think the training that you get in any theater program is going to be applicable to whatever it is that you do. You know, if you become a lawyer, uh, those acting chops are really going to help you. Um, anything that you have to deal with the public in. Um, so I think there's valuable lessons learned no matter what it is that, that you wind up doing. But um, we've had many people go on to have uh, successful careers in the theater, both on the stage and off. Uh, uh, Michael McGuire was here in the 80s. He wound up winning a, a Tony Award for the original production of Les Miserables and, and many more uh, as well. But there's a lot of people who are working in Hollywood right now, particularly on the stunt side, uh, who learned their craft here at Tecumseh. It's tremendous. I, I watched a video where you described a night when the performance is getting ready as though a tornado is ready to hit because yes. you don't know, you know, you have a general idea what's going to happen, but you don't know about everything that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, one of the charms of, <laughs> of doing producing <laughs> theater outdoors. Um, it might rain. Uh, you might get a goose land in the middle of the stage. Uh, <laughs> we had a weather balloon come down one night in the middle, in the middle of the scene. Um, you know, our horses are, are highly trained. I mean, they, uh, this is what they do. They love coming here. They just came back on property a couple of days ago, and you can tell they're happy to be home. Uh, and, uh, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, the horses do exactly what they're supposed to do. And 0.1% of the time, it's a wild card. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's always uh, 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 elements that are that are outside of your control. But uh, the rehearsal process, the training, the safety training that we do here uh, gives those actors and those stage managers the tools that they need to be able to respond safely and quickly to pretty much anything that could happen. 
little bit off the historical track when a weather balloon lands in front of Tecumseh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was quite something. <laughs> it, as you alluded to, his story, though, is amazing because he was an enemy of the American government and yet respected by, from what I understand, the American government. I mean, they knew that he was somebody to deal with, an intelligent leader, and and also involved in the War of 1812. Who would ever think so, you know? Yeah, no, it, it truly is an amazing story. There's some great books out there. And, you know, it's always my hope. Uh, you know, we can't tell his whole life story in a two-hour play here. Um, and so it's always my hope that people come, they get interested, and they want to learn more about it because it, it is an important part of our collective history. And I think that really at, at, its, at its heart, this show is the story of what can happen when a group of people, a community gets together uh, to work towards a common goal. And I think that people can identify with that, uh, whether or not they know these people or not. There's, there's some kernel of truth in there that everybody can identify with. Talking with Brandon Smith, producer of Tecumseh, the outdoor drama. This is the 50th uh, season coming up. What about ticket availability and, and anything else that you want to tell us about when the season gets underway? Yeah, uh, TecumsehDrama.com will give you all the information. You can buy your tickets right there. Um, You know, most nights, uh, if people are just, you know, sitting at dinner at 5 o'clock and they go, hey, let's go see Tecumseh tonight, you can probably walk up and get a ticket. Uh, The exceptions to that are Fridays and Saturdays, which generally sell out every week. So we recommend that people do make their reservation in advance for that. But, um, you know, it can can be a a spur-of-the-moment decision to come down. If you want to. When is opening night? June 16th uh, is opening night, and we run Monday through Saturday until Labor Day weekend. So you've got 73, I think it is this year, uh, chances to come see the show. Outstanding. Brandon Smith again, producer of Tecumseh Outdoor Drama. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello. How are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay! My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. (laughs) What drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing. It really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. 
This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Brittany Bailey from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. for joining us for Face the State. I'm Brittany Bailey in for Tracy Townsend today. We begin with a controversial bill passed by the Ohio legislature. House Bill 99 allows school districts to choose whether to arm employees after some training on school property. The bill only requires up to 24 hours of firearms training. Debate about the bill got heated when one Democrat who opposed the bill called out her Republican colleagues who supported it. When there's a terrible incident and everyone in this room will have blood on your hands. I do not appreciate those aspersions and and I want to to defend uh, our colleagues on this side of the aisle that every member who votes for this bill uh, is not doing so so that they can wash their hands with blood, uh, but rather uh, because we believe this is an action that will protect uh, the students and, and children of Ohio. I think it's crazy. This bill is crazy. I can tell you that my communities want this bill. Yours may not. Mine do. Governor Mike DeWine said he does plan to sign the bill, despite critics who say it doesn't provide enough training. My concern has always been that if there's a teacher in the classroom, that the school makes the decision, and ultimately this is the school's decision, not mine, but if the school makes the decision they want to arm a teacher, uh, it's important that that teacher have sufficient background and that that training be specifically to what happens inside a school building. Also, um, there will be continuing training that will have to occur every year. Uh, And something that I'm going to announce right now uh, is that we will also be giving schools the choice uh, of providing additional training uh, that we will stake out, provide for, uh, if they decide that they want more than 24 hours for a teacher. We want them to be able to expand that if the school wants to do that. Governor DeWine's challenger in the November election, Democrat Nan Whaley, called on him to veto House Bill 99. She said failure to do so puts our children, their teachers, and school employees at risk. 10TV's Richard Solomon has reaction from both sides of this argument. Many people can agree schools need more safety measures in place. But when it comes to House Bill 99... I honestly think this is the most insane thing ever. Regina Fuentes' stance is clear. The Eastmore High School teacher is finishing up her 24th year in education. She's also a spokesperson for Columbus Education Association. The Ohio House passed HB 99, which would allow Ohio school districts to allow employees who complete specific training to carry handguns on school grounds. 
Fuentes says this isn't what schools need. We need to make sure that we have proper counseling, the guidance counselors, the nurses. We need to have those things ready so we have all the supports ready for the students so they never reach the level of needing to even consider or think about a weapons. However, Rob Sexton with Buckeye Firearms Association says the bill will add an extra layer of safety for Ohio schools. We've just been very concerned uh, about something tragic happening like just happened in Texas. I think it gives school districts options if they want to take them. The bill would require school employees that do carry a handgun to have up to 24 hours of initial training, eight hours of yearly pre-qualification training. Training must also include how to stop an active shooter, de-escalate a violent situation, as well as other exercises. Every second counts in terms of saving lives. So while they're waiting for the police to arrive, this gives schools an option to protect kids. Sexton and Fuentes do agree on this. Schools need to be safer. Fuentes says that means more common sense gun control, while Sexton believes HB 99 is doing something about gun violence. That was Richard Solomon reporting. Now, I recently sat down with three local teachers and asked about this change. All three of them were against arming teachers. All those debates that are going on, is it mental health? Is it, is it the access to weapons? Is it all of that? Yes, it is all of that. But also that, again, is not within necessarily our control. Um, so I don't know, maybe letting teachers teach and, and get to know their kids and build those relationships would help make the school feel a lot safer and um, trust us in our training as educators and and not having to be, um, I don't like, you know, uh, front line of a I, guess, I mean, like a war. It is a war sometimes, not necessarily in our buildings, but just in society. So, When you have, especially in an elementary school, a lot of young children around and there are weapons, um, it, to me that would not make me feel safe. If it's with security and law enforcement that have those things that have been properly trained extensively, that's another issue. Um, but, you know, our job is, in my opinion, is not to carry weapons. I'm there to make children feel safe and not to be armed. I'm there to comfort them. I'm there to teach them. I'm there to do those things and, and not carry a weapon. I, I'm a veteran. I serve in the military. Um, and there's an extensive amount of training that it takes. And some folk don't have that training. Um, and if they did, I still wouldn't necessarily trust them because I've seen some teachers have some serious breakdowns. Um, as much as I love teachers and they're good people, um, they're still human beings and they make mistakes. And I wouldn't want a teacher to have to decide if that person coming in is a threat to the school or somebody trying in a hurry to pick up their kid because they have a dentist appointment. The last thing I would ever want for any of my colleagues is to have to pull a gun while their class watches them. Let's talk about that level of trauma. You know, this isn't just protecting them physically. It is protecting them emotionally, too. And, and I couldn't imagine, like, going back, I couldn't imagine watching one of my teachers do that. Why, why would I do that to my students? We also asked Congresswoman Joyce Beatty what should be done to protect students and to prevent more mass shootings. Here's what she says the Congressional Black Caucus is doing to advance gun control reform. 
We've had emergency meetings and Zoom meetings all week with our leadership and membership. Uh, we have pulled together every bill that would deal with gun reform from the Congressional Black Caucus. 39 bills do, dealing with everything from closing the loophole to preventing those uh, from buying uh, assault weapons to having a, a period that you would have to uh, wait before buying uh, such uh, a weapon, and we are proposing them to the House floor. I have personally reached out to my Republican senators. This is not a partisan issue. This is an issue about saving lives. While it won't take care of the whole problem, we certainly believe if those most recent shooters, if someone had done a background check, it probably would have prevented them from buying that weapon. So we're reaching out to everyone uh, to try to make sure that we can at least do our part. Certainly on the House side, we have passed gun laws, but we need to get it in both houses and we need to get it to the president's desk. Ohio lawmakers also wrapped up a new round of testimony on a bill that impacts the LGBTQ community. House Bill 454 would ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors in our state. Now, I was there when opponents of the bill got their chance to speak to lawmakers. It was important for us to bring some of our clinical leaders to set the record straight. Several representatives from the Ohio Children's Hospital Association spoke in today's hearing, which was invite only for opponents of the bill. The association represents our state's six children's hospitals, including nationwide. We do not do gender affirming surgeries. We do provide in limited circumstances puberty blockers and hormone treatment, but only after a very extensive and comprehensive multidisciplinary approach anchored in behavioral and mental health. That is the foundation of care that when a family and a patient presents, oftentimes in crisis, they are subjected to intense counseling before any additional course of action may or may not be uh, recommended for that individual. A lot of the care that you seem to be concerned about, they're saying, doesn't happen in Ohio. It does happen. And uh, do you have the Facebook posts? So we have... We, we can't Facebook. go on Facebook posts. Uh, That's there. like saying my Uncle Joe up the street has a neighbor. No, it's not. It's their Facebook. It's their monitored Facebook. It is parents who are actually happy with the services that's being provided. And they are... They have control over this Facebook group. They could go in and moderate. They could remove these posts. They could take these posts out. They could do... They're in total control of this Facebook page. Representative Click, who sponsored the bill, then gave us a stack of printed Facebook comments as his proof. And he was not swayed by the testimony from medical experts. This protects children. What about the people who say this harms children? I disagree with them. I don't think the facts bear them up. Well, a good deal of the information that Pastor Click's supporters have shared is uh, false and misleading, and it's not based in science or evidence. So it's not equivalent to what we saw today from healthcare professionals. One of the biggest concerns for opponents is that if the bill passes, any hospital that still offers certain gender-affirming care could be stripped of all Medicaid funding. Those are grave, grave consequences over a bill that we believe is a solution in search of an Ohio problem that does not exist. 
Well, there has been more hot debate on House Bill 616. It would ban divisive topics from the classroom. And talk about it is even happening outside of the State House. There was a panel discussion at the Columbus Metropolitan Club, and here's just part of that conversation. Thank you for allowing my colleague and me the opportunity to provide sponsor testimony on House Bill 616. We want nothing more than to allow our children to be taught the facts and learn necessary information to prepare them for life, such as math and science. This bill will ensure that the classroom is a place of learning, not a place of biased political talking points. As my colleague has stated, the bill is simple. First, it would prohibit the teaching of divisive or inherently racist concepts from being taught. No child should ever fear being called a racist because of the color of their skin or be forced to thinking that the wrongs of the past are on their shoulders. Second, this bill aims for age-appropriate instruction as it relates to sexual orientation or gender identity. Our youngest children, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds, need to focus on developing their skills and being children. They should not be focused on sexually related matters. To be clear, this bill does not ban the teaching of those things. In fact, as my colleague pointed out, this allows that instruction to begin as early as the fourth grade, and it must be age-appropriate for the development of the child. Finally, this bill gives parents a voice. As I sit here, uh, I'm thinking about the wonderful opportunities that I've had to appear in schools, talking to different children and their teachers and parents about different issues that come up. And some of the things that happen in those settings is that people ask me about bills. Would you agree that if 616 would come up for discussion, actually under your bill, I wouldn't be allowed to talk with the children and share their ideas and find out from them what they thought about this process? Through the chair. Uh, Representative, actually, you're an invited guest, and an invited guest uh, is allowed to uh, talk about what they want to talk about. Uh, that's not part of a curriculum. A curriculum is something that has been planned, and from uh, being planned as a curriculum, then you have a lesson plan, uh, then you have goals and objectives and those kind of things. You walking in as the representative in your area uh, is uh, outside the scope, and usually something very welcome to the school. Follow up. Thank you to the chair, and thank you so much for that. It looks like I better make my calendar wide open because there is a lot to discuss in the schools. And um, by no means would any kind of prohibition or any type of censorship be the answer for it. People do want to talk about things and discuss them, and it makes us better people when we sit down together and we discuss these things. Never would censorship or prohibition be the answer. I'm delighted to come to any classroom in Ohio and speak. Thank you. Well, when we come back, hear why Governor candidate Nan Whaley wants to write you a check and what her opponent thinks of that plan. 
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Long ago, you wouldn't think of galloping on a horse while doing calligraphy. And you wouldn't have attempted to ride your bike while typing a letter. Yet you think you can safely operate a multi-ton vehicle while texting? Behind the wheel is no place to multitask. If you want to BRB, drive now and text later. Lives depend on it. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Project Yellow Light noise and the ad council this is columbus perspective on the fan back to Brittany bailey courtesy of 10 tv well before breaking for the summer the ohio state senators discussed senate bill 226 the bill aims to extend the statute of limitations for prosecuting child abuse or neglect cases now several survivors of sexual abuse told their stories in hopes of convincing lawmakers to pass this bill Yes, it's a complicated issue, and yes, it's a big conversation to have, but I think that we can make a difference. Isn't this the reason that you want to be in the legislature, to make an impact, to save people's lives? We can save countless lives if we address this issue with with legislation. And maybe it's this bill, or maybe it's another one, but the conversation needs to be had. And we need to bring justice, not so that we can make things better for victims. You can't give me justice. You can't give me back my childhood. You can't give me back the thousands of nights of nightmares that I had. But we can create an incentive to help this happen to less kids in the future. Our state cannot afford to keep the statute of limitations the way it currently is. Fiscally speaking, each time we allow a survivor of a heinous sexual crime go without justice or just the opportunity of speaking out and breaking the stigma surrounding the abuse and the rape, we are paying for it greatly everywhere else. Lawmakers also passed the capital budget, which had $100 million for school security upgrades. House Bill 687 is the $3.5 billion budget, and more than $1 billion of that budget goes to helping Intel build its two microchip facilities in Licking County. Intel did release a statement saying, in part... Ohio is the ideal location for our company to begin reestablishing America as a world leader in production of modern components vital to the quality of our daily lives and to our economic and national security. And we're hearing big promises from a candidate for Ohio governor. Nan Whaley says she wants to send you a check. My message is pretty simple. I want your pay to go up your bills to go down, and your government to finally work for you. I can't think of a better way to do all three of these things at once than by sending working Ohioans an inflation rebate. Ohio is set to receive more than $2 billion from the next round of funding from the American Rescue Plan. Whaley says the state should use that money to help struggling Ohioans. Governor Mike DeWine's campaign team said this type of spending, though, is responsible for the, quote, sky-high cost of living. The team said to help families, DeWine cut personal income taxes by $2.2 billion. 
Thousands of new jobs are headed to northern Ohio. Governor Mike DeWine made that announcement at a Ford plant in Lorain County. The nearly 2,000 new jobs will be in electric vehicle production. This is a $1.5 billion investment. DeWine says the need for investments like this one became apparent during the pandemic. When it comes to essential things, we must make them in the United States of America. Construction for the plant is set for later this year, but production on the new electric vehicle may not begin until 2025. Pride Month is here. Kids and adults alike can seek out their local pride group um, to have a sense of community. See how the signs of support are spreading from the city to the suburbs. There's a child in Kenya, or Sierra Leone, or India, or Bolivia, who you could connect with. And through Child Fund, it's possible. We may be thousands of miles apart, but we can still connect with each other. And when we do, we make things better. We connect children all around the world with what they need to grow up healthy, educated, and safe. That's what Child Fund is about. Together, we co-create, support, and sustain connections that lead to greater well-being for millions of children who live in poverty worldwide, and their families, and their communities, and their countries, and you. Join us. Together, we can make the world a better place. Two small worlds at a time. His and yours. Visit childfund.org to learn more. People do some pretty cool things in their 40s and 50s. Why should saving for retirement be any different? I mean, they go back to college. Learn new instruments. Start skateboarding. Okay, maybe that one's not for everybody, but saving for retirement is. With aceyourretirement.org, you can get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. Just have a three-minute chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach from AARP. You'll get personalized recommendations based on your input that are easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Gnarly move, Dad. Thanks, sweetie. So wherever you are in your retirement savings journey, head to aceyourretirement.org and start chatting with Avo today. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Brittany Bailey, courtesy of 10TV. Pride Month is here. Columbus City Hall is now lit up in pride colors at night, but the city is not alone. Other parts of Franklin County are showing support as well. 10TV's Ashley Bornanson talked with local pride leaders about how things are changing in our suburbs. This is the inclusive rainbow flag that includes trans and BIPOC identities. Pride, the celebration of inclusion, of support. 
having all these celebrations around Ohio has just been making a difference in our community and well-being of others. And what pride leaders say are human rights. Yeah, it's a matter of establishing your rights. Um, you know, people need to do that together. It's not something you do by yourself. Most pride leaders are preparing for celebrations to be back in person, from Upper Arlington and Hilliard to Bexley and Grove City. Many leaders say students are the ones who started the push from local cities. They identify with all these different flags, and they wanted to make sure that people knew about all the different flags and all the different identities at our pride event. Kathy Adams, the first openly LGBTQ member of Upper Arlington City Council, says there were over a thousand people at last year's first ever event that all started from student cries for support, which is why UA Rainbow is making this year's events alcohol free. There were Instagram stories of Dear UA Schools, Dear Bexley Schools, different suburbs where students anonymously told their stories of trauma that was happening to them. Adam says the UA Support Facebook group now has over 700 members, connecting families and LGBTQ members with the resources they need. It's a changing city. It's changed. It's become much more inclusive. Councilman um, Brian Hedge says one of those changes includes a grant from the city to support UA Pride events this year. Upper Arlington isn't the only one. The city of Reynoldsburg is sponsoring the city's pride event this year. That right there in and of itself is, is something that I think we can be proud of. Hilliard School psychologist Joshua Stevens says it's refreshing to see support in the schools and is expecting large crowds once again at Rainbow Hilliard. And I think one of the best things is that it's nonpartisan, it's not political, and it's just people coming to show that we support other human beings. Supporting and protecting the community, Hilliard City Council member Cynthia Vermillion says is key. She says it's not just about showing up, but about taking action. That's exactly why the city passed a non-discrimination ordinance act back in 2021 to protect all residents. That was important to us, obviously, because we feel strongly that everyone needs to be protected. This will also be Grove city's first ever pride event. I just wanted to, again, wanted inclusiveness in the community. I just wanted to, you know, especially in Grove City, it's where it can be hard sometimes. Pride leaders say there's still a long way to go, but bringing pride to the suburbs is a giant leap toward acceptance for all. When there is representation and visibility of kids that are gender nonconforming or trans or just gay or lesbian, it makes a world of difference. In Upper Arlington, <laughs> Ashley Bornanson, 10 TV News. In honor of Pride Month, the city of Columbus gave out the Illuminator Award. It went to Shaban Boyd Nelson. That award recognizes someone in Columbus who promotes LGBTQ rights and creates a more inclusive city. Boyd Nelson works for Equality Ohio and serves as a board member for Black Out and Proud. She says Ohio has come far, but there is still more work to do. So this is an invitation, not an obligation. I invite you, whoever you are in this room, whether you are an activist or an advocate, an ally, a friend, a family member, how have you stood up for LGBTQ plus people? And if not now, when will you? 
We did put together a list of all of the Pride events happening in Central Ohio. You can text the word Pride to 614-460-3345 and we'll send you a link straight to your phone. Well, thanks everyone for being here with us today. And remember, if it affects you, your family and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Brittany Bailey from our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy Townsend with a preview of what you can see this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. We are taking a closer look at Ohio's Save Women's Sports Act. The details of the bill, meant to block transgender girls from playing on female sports teams, call for an invasive verification check. The high school sports association and medical experts say it's a no for them. And our reporting on an Ohio man accused of running a fake funeral home? Well, 10 investigates turns out to be critical to laws being changed. We will see you at 1130 for Face the State. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and I'm talking with Dara Lieberman, Director of Government Relations at Trust for America's Health. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Trust for America's Health is. Well, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan public health policy research and advocacy organization. We work to advance policies that support health for all people and communities. And you're out with, uh, this is actually something that you do annually and, and did well before the pandemic, looking at public health preparedness by state. Right. We've been doing a version of this report for, for about two decades, looking at how our nation is preparing at the federal and state level for public health emergencies like COVID and natural disasters. And what are you finding uh, during these uh, rather turbulent times? Well, we found that uh, the nation continues to underfund uh, the basic public health infrastructure and workforce that we really need to be better prepared for the next emergency. You've kind of broken it down by state. How does Ohio rank among the states in this? Ohio is one of three states that actually jumped up two tiers in this year's report, from our lowest tier last year to the high tier this year. There's some areas where Ohio improved, and that uh, that helps their score. So we look across um, 10 indicators that we feel help uh, would help a state become more prepared um, across public health, health care, emergency management, and other sectors. So some areas that helped Ohio in this year's report, the state joined the Nurse Licensure Compact, which uh, allows out-of-state nurses to come work in the state during an emergency more easily. So we saw that used a lot during the pandemic when there were workforce shortages. Ohio also had a fairly significant increase in its public health funding, a 20% increase over the prior year. And the state has increased its public health funding for three years in a row. Are you seeing uh, big differences or do you look into, uh, you know, whether states that are run by one political party over the other do a different job in how they prepare public health in these situations? We did not break anything down by political party. I think there are some some reports out there that try to do that, but that's not the purpose of this year. Okay. You know, it's interesting here because uh, back in the, the very early days of the pandemic, our then health director, Dr. Amy Acton, was 
credited by a lot of people for putting it on the line and not holding back, even though it sounded a little bit like what she was saying was over the top to some people. I remember at one point, pretty early on, she said that Ohio could see 10,000 coronavirus cases per day. And that's back when there were very few. And that ended up happening. And uh, it seems like that kind of messaging from public health is really important when you look back over it. Yeah, uh, accurate and timely public health communications is really a critical role of public health. And we're learning more by the day about the impact of misinformation and disinformation and really how important it is to be uh, to be frank and, and speak with the public about what we know and what we don't know. And, and obviously this was a rapidly changing virus and what we knew about it changed by the day as well. But it really did put public health kind of on trial and it failed in, in some people's eyes. I mean, there were you know state legislatures, including here in Ohio, that have tried to take away some of the, the power that the governor or that health departments have in issuing health orders. Yeah, we are seeing in, in numerous states um, attempts to limit the public, basic public health authorities, like making sure that children are vaccinated before they go to school, making sure that um, that public health has the authorities it needs to protect the public during uh, an infectious disease outbreak. But really, you know, part of the challenge of the last two years is due to a, a major underinvestment in public health. We haven't given the system, the tools they need to um, be able to detect a disease early, quickly, and contain it before it becomes a, pan- a pandemic of this magnitude. Talking with Dara Lieberman, Director of Government Relations at Trust for America's Health. In the event of another pandemic, or if this thing, you know, if there's another variant that just becomes even worse than anything we've seen to this point, do you think that public health around the country is going to be able to play the same role it has in the past, or is there going to be a lot more suspicion. What's your thought on that? Well, we certainly are not out of the woods yet with this pandemic, and we we can't let our guard down. I think we're entering a new phase where um, public health officials are learning how to uh, live with the disease. We know now that we're not going to eradicate it, most likely, but how can we best contain it? So we need to make sure that public health has those tools to be able to communicate with people where they are and reach across political divides so that we're better protecting every community. Is there still a sense that public health funding is something that is needed and uh, and will continue to grow, in, in at least in some of these states where it has been? Well, certainly. There, one of the um, things that we point out in this report is how little funding there has been for the basic public health infrastructure. So, Uh, Imagine we had a fire department but didn't give them a firehouse or didn't give them trucks or train uh, the firefighters. But that's really what we've been asking public health to do over the past two decades. So the short-term funding we're seeing for COVID response isn't enough to build and retain a workforce that has really been depleted over the past two decades. And it's so interesting when I look at your list of uh, states and and how they're performing. If you look at some of the low-tier states, you know, you've got... Places like West Virginia and Arkansas on the low end, but also Oregon, which I don't think you can find states that are so different from each other than that group. Yeah, there really was no pattern based on geography or any other factor, um, just based on a very limited number of data points that we look at. But it's really intended to give states a checklist of things that they can do. Um, We try to choose data that's really actionable, that that, uh, state policymakers as well as 
the public health sector, the health sector can uh, take steps to make uh, the state more prepared. And last question, is there any state in particular that stands out as, as kind of the model of how to go forward? Well, I, I think we've seen success stories across states in terms of uh, building partnerships um, with a community-based organizations like churches, like um, groups that serve uh, populations that have been left behind typically. We need to continue those partnerships moving forward, not just throughout this pandemic, but so that we can be better prepared for future emergencies. And Dara, where can folks find this information online? Our report is on our website, tfah.org, for Trust for America's Health. Great. Dara Lieberman with uh, Trust for America's Health. Thanks so much for the information. Thank you, Dave. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone is Lee Purvis, who is the Director of Healthcare Costs and Access for AARP. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about prescription drug prices, especially specialty drug prices. What are those? Specialty drugs don't really have a set definition, but they're drugs that typically require special administration, so maybe they're injected, or special handling, so they're maybe refrigerated. Um, and they're used to treat conditions like cancer and multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis. But probably their most defining characteristic is definitely their price. They are typically among the most expensive drugs on the market. Um, AARP actually took a look at the prices of 180 ICU specialty drugs, and we found that the average annual cost for just one specialty drug is around $84,000 per year. Wow. So sometimes we see these commercials now on TV where people are talking about how a single pill is thousands of dollars for treatment of cancer and, and other diseases. That is absolutely the case. We really are seeing kind of a race to the top when it comes to prescription drug prices. Um, we used to get really upset about drugs that cost $10,000 per year, and we're now seeing drugs coming on the market with price tags in the millions. Um, so there's definitely been a huge escalation in the prices of prescription drugs, and that's having a real impact. So if somebody, uh, you know, whether it's somebody on Medicare or somebody who has uh, private insurance, are they covered for for these kind of drugs? They are covered. Um, Unfortunately, they tend to come with some really high cost sharing. So we hear about some Medicare beneficiaries who are on incredibly expensive drugs who are facing cost sharing that exceeds $10,000 per year. And when you think about the fact that the median income for Medicare beneficiaries is around $30,000 per year, that is completely unsustainable. Um, I don't think anyone, regardless of income, could afford those types of costs, but we really are hearing about Medicare beneficiaries who are struggling. Obamacare, uh, years ago, at least uh, lifted caps on the cost that people could end up paying over a lifetime, right? It did for private insurance. There are out-of-pocket maximums. Unfortunately, that doesn't actually exist under Medicare Part D. Um, There is an out-of-pocket limit, but it's not a hard out-of-pocket limit. And that's why we hear about those beneficiaries who are paying tens of thousands of dollars per year, because unlike under private insurance, they don't have a hard cap. And that is causing, again, those incredibly high costs for them. So are these uh, greedy examples by the pharmaceutical companies, or are these expensive drugs? Drug companies will definitely tell you that it's related to the cost associated with development. Um, But there is kind of a unique phenomenon in the United States in the sense that drug companies really are free to set their prices at what the market will bear, which unfortunately is often kind of a sweet spot between maximizing their revenue and making everyone really angry. 
we see these incredibly high prices in the United States, and it's because we've been given drug companies the freedom to price their products pretty much wherever they want. Is there anything being done in, uh, you know, in, on the policy level in Washington to try to straighten this out? Absolutely. This is an issue that is really resonating with policymakers, probably because it has such widespread bipartisan public support. Um, there are very few issues that have such incredible support uh, among the public, around 90% of every survey that we've seen. So we're seeing a lot of activity at the state and the federal level. At the federal level, there's actually legislation moving that does three really important things that AARP strongly supports, which are allowing Medicare to negotiate prices on behalf of its beneficiaries, creating that hard out-of-pocket cap under Medicare Part D to help limit costs for beneficiaries, and then penalizing drug companies that increase their prices faster than inflation, which our reports have shown is something that unfortunately happens year after year. Well, a few years ago, Martin Shkreli, the uh, the pharmaceutical bro, as they, as they called him, ended up, uh, he still is in prison after uh, jacking up the prices of some prescription drugs. He got a lot of attention for that, but I think he actually was convicted of securities fraud, you know, unrelated to the drug prices, but it still got a lot of attention and a lot of criticism. Did that make any difference? Not that I've seen. <laughs> Unfortunately, we really are seeing those consistent year-after-year price increases that exceed inflation. Um, For example, these specialty drugs, the reports that we just recently released, we found that the prices for the 180 drugs that we looked at increased at more than three and a half times the rate of inflation in 2020. So we really have not, unfortunately, seen a real change in behavior when it comes to those high prices and then price increases. And some of the other drugs, maybe not the ones that are astronomically high, but very common drugs like uh, inhalers for asthma, that can be like 100 to 150 bucks per unit, from what I understand. Some of them, I think, are even a whole lot more expensive than that. Yes, we see some high prices among just non-specialty brand drugs as well. Um, we track the prices of those products as well and found that on average the price for one brand name drug used on a chronic basis is around $6,600 per year. So that's still a substantial cost um, for people who are facing costs for other important things like food and rent. Talking with Lee Purvis from AARP, uh, anything else you want to add on this? I think the most important thing for a lot of people to keep in mind is that this really is an issue that affects everyone. You're either paying as a patient at the pharmacy counter or you're paying for your health insurance premiums and other cost sharing, or you're paying as a taxpayer because public programs like Medicare and Medicaid pay for prescription drugs. So this really is an issue that affects absolutely everyone, regardless of whether you're taking a prescription drug yourself. And these days, too, with, uh, you know, the sort of the uncertainty in the economy and the job market, folks who are not old enough for Medicare, who may be leaving the workforce and having to get insurance on their own until they hit 65, These are really vital issues. Absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, if you are facing a situation where you can't afford your prescription drugs, that can lead to negative health impacts and higher health care costs down the road. So it's really important to make sure that these drugs are affordable for the people who need them. If somebody does not have insurance, if they're caught between jobs or something and they're diagnosed with cancer and they need one of these drugs, do they not get them because they can't afford them and they have no insurance? unfortunately heard and seen research uh, about patients who are choosing to walk away from the prescription drugs they need, even for potentially lethal conditions like cancer. And that's why AARP has been so engaged on this issue, because we don't think anyone should have to face those kind of choices. In a situation like that, you know, maybe they haven't applied for Medicaid or, you know, whatever. 
Does the government step in and help folks that are like that if they if they push the issue that they need the drugs? A lot of times we find that patients are actually appealing to the drug companies themselves. A lot of them have patient assistance programs that will give you access to their products uh, at a much lower price or even for free if you can qualify. But the reality is there are some people who are just choosing to go without. Too stressful to even deal with, right? You're already uh, potentially dying of, of a horrible disease, and then that just adds to the stress on top of it. Absolutely. And you know, as I said before, that really is not a situation we think that anyone should find themselves in, which is why we're so committed to trying to find a way to bring those prices down. Lee, where can folks find out more information online? People who want to learn more about our report or this issue can go to aerp.org slash rxpricewatch. Okay, Lee Purvis, Director of Healthcare Costs and Access for AARP. Thanks for the information today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.